Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right. If you have a Bible, let's open it to Romans chapter 8. We'll be looking at just three verses this morning, verses 28, 29, and 30. Three of, I think, the most beautiful and rock-solid assurance-producing verses in the whole Bible. As you're finding that, if you don't have a Bible, as always, I encourage you to use one of the ones that you can find in the chair rack in front of you. Keep that Bible if you don't own one. That's our gift to you. I think it'd be really helpful for you to have your copy of God's Word and for you to stare at the inspired, infallible, authoritative words of God for yourself. As you're finding that, let me mention that um, next week, I I will be here, but Tyler Kirkpatrick, our new youth pastor who was doing the announcements and scripture reading, or the the middle of the service there, will be preaching on uh, Matthew chapter 19, I believe, so I'm really looking forward to that. And then the following Sunday, I am so excited that we have the privilege to have our dear friend Gareth Franks with us. Gareth and his wife Carrie um, have been with us before. Gareth and Carrie are from South Africa, and for about 14 years, they were missionaries in India, and they planted two churches there in India, and they are our connection to our partnerships in India. But since that time, Gareth and his wife Carrie have left India and are now pastoring a church in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates in a very Muslim nation, a very wealthy nation, uh, and they are pastoring an evangelical, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church in the heart of the Arab world in Abu Dhabi. And Gareth will be with us in two Sundays and will be preaching and uh, he'll be with us through the week, and, and we'll have some activities with him. But I'm, I'm really excited for you to hear from Gareth. He's a fantastic communicator of God's Word. He has a really awesome South African accent, and he's ministering in an incredibly uh, just strategic part of the world. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, let me read verses 28 through 30 in Romans chapter 8. Friends, these are deep waters. I think Romans chapter 8 is one of the most beautiful chapters in the whole Bible, maybe the most beautiful chapter if there is such a thing. I think it's, it's like the highest mountain of the glory of God. It starts with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. It spans the whole Christian life. The purpose of Romans 8 is to give weary, suffering, confused, anxious, Battling Christians like us, assurance that God will bring his people, all of them, safely home. And Romans chapter 8, verses 28, 29, and 30 is like the peak of the highest mountain. Now, it's also a controversial text. It's a text that has been debated for centuries. I pray that this morning we can see the beauty of God's unbreakable love in the hearts and lives and destinies of his people. So let me read Romans 8, 28 through 30 and pray, 
work through this text. And then at the end, before we leave this room this morning, at the end of the message, we have the privilege to see a brother, member of the church, be baptized and to proclaim the gospel through water baptism. Paul writes, verse 28 of Romans 8, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can sing. Thank you that we can gather. Thank you that we can open your word. I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable to you, O God. You are our rock and our redeemer. Father, I pray that you would save the lost, that you would sanctify the already found, and that you would do a thousand other things that we don't even know that need to be done in our lives to can make us more like Jesus. Use this text, I pray, for our good and your glory in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to hang my thoughts on these verses on this outline. And really the outline just has two, two points. The first is we see an absolute guarantee and an unbreakable chain. An absolute guarantee and an unbreakable chain. First, I want us to see the absolute guarantee of verse 28. Look at verse 28 again. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now this may be, along with verses like John 3.16, one of the most well-known and often quoted verses in all of the Bible. But I want us to see and stare at this text for a moment because I think this is the high point of what Romans 8 is communicating to us. And in this, in this sentence here, there's this guarantee. It's really a spectacular, it's a stunning guarantee. It's an exhaustive and all-comprehensive promise that Paul is making that for those that God has saved, everything will work together for their good. And that all of this happens according to his purpose. So there's three things embedded in this text that I, I briefly want us to see before we look at verses 29 and 30, which are, I think, the theological foundation upon which verse 28 rests. Verse 28 is true because of what is underneath it, verses 29 and 30. The first thing I want us to see in verse 28, 28 of this absolute guarantee is I want us to see that there is a people there's a people, a specific people that is in view here. 
Paul uses the word there at the beginning. He says, and we know that for those. That's an important distinction. Those. Paul is right away telling us that he is speaking about a particular group of people. This spectacular, stunning promise that comprises the second half of verse 28 only applies to a particular group of people, and it is, in this instance, he's calling them those. Who are those people? It is those. It's Christians. This promise is not a general promise of karma that applies to everybody who just kind of hopes that everything will eventually work out in the end. This applies specifically to believers. People, listen to this, American Christians, people from every tribe and tongue and nation, people from every ethnicity, people from every ethnic group, people from every culture, people from places that we've never heard of that are part of God's people are those whom he is working all things together for his glory. And it's not just a people there in this, in this text. There's a, there's a stunning promise. There's a, a promise that he is clearly making. He's saying, just stare at it. We can't look at this long enough. He's saying that everything, all things, everything works together for our good. Let's learn to read the Bible slowly. All things, everything. From the smallest and most mundane and trivial of things that happens to us to the biggest and most global things that happen in this world, somehow or another, God is exhaustively working, superintending all things to result in the eventual good of a particular group of people that he has saved for his glory. That, no, no. That means that there is not an atom in the furthest atom, not atom, atom, A-T-O-M, in the furthest edge of the universe that is not existing except for some express purpose for the good of God's people and the display of his glory. That means that there's not a satellite closer to us, whether Russian or American or whatever, that is spying on you right now that doesn't somehow exist for the good of God's people. That means that there is not a power or a principality. There is not a dictator in North Korea, a terrorist in the Middle East, an unhinged president, an unpredictable stock market, or a cancer cell that may be existing in your body right now undetected that is not somehow being arranged by God for your good if you're one of those people. And underneath a people and a promise 
is a purpose. A purpose. Stephen, this morning, started our service off by reading from Psalm 115, verse 1 through 11. And look, look at Psalm 115, verse 1 again. What does it say? It says, it says this beautiful orienting truth. The psalmist says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. So this group of people that he has promised to arrange all things in this exhaustive, comprehensive, absolute sort of way, even all of the things that he is doing now that exist for their good, that is not the end or the terminus of God's motivation, but behind it all is a glorious purpose for the display of the glory of his name. In fact, just do a word search this afternoon This phrase, for my name's sake, and the Psalms in particular, and the book of Isaiah is filled with this expression where God says, I am going to do this. I will rescue you. I will redeem you, my rebellious people, not for your sake, but for my sake, says the Lord. In Ephesians chapter 1, which we We have time, we'll read later. I won't take the time to do it now, but it says that God has predestined us. He's adopted us for adoption in Christ Jesus. And he says that he has done this all to the praise of his glorious grace. And so embedded in this promise, this absolute guarantee, this stunning, almost too much to take in guarantee is a people who is a specific, particular group of people, a promise that everything somehow will serve their ultimate good and a purpose behind it, which is the display of the glory of God in the redemption of his people. And friends, that, that's just the first verse. What then does this absolute guarantee rest on? Well, Paul can be so sure that this guarantee is true because of the theology that he is about to give us in verses 29 through 30. And verses 29 and 30 form what theologians have, have called an unbreakable chain of God's sovereign grace. So let me read verses 29 through 30 again, and we're gonna just work our way through these important words that are in this text and see this unbreakable chain of God's love that guarantees the bringing about of the absolute promise that we just, we just considered. Verses 29 and 30. For those, again, this particular group of people, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul gives us some, some key and important words in these two verses. And I want us to just look at this unbreakable, this golden chain that this absolute guarantee rests on. And this first word that we want to look on is this word that has been really 
quite, quite debated and controversial for centuries. And it's important that we think deeply about what Paul is saying in this text. So again, what's in view is a particular group of people, those whom he foreknew. So this first word is foreknew. What does Paul mean when he uses that word foreknew? Because everything that verse 28 says is resting upon this fact that God foreknew this particular group of people. So what does it mean that God foreknew those whom all these wonderful things would eventually be true of in verse 28? Well, there are two major views about understanding what this word for new means. The, the first view, and, and I, would, I would call this, I would classify this a, a kind of two-handed view of salvation, a synergistic view of how salvation works, meaning that God comes to us and we cooperate with God, God reaches to us and we reach back to him. A, a two-handed view of salvation. And I would say that this is probably the, the dominant view uh, of most American Christians. And that particular view sees this word foreknow, foreknew, as meaning that God knew something particular about his people. Because clearly what he's done with those whom he's foreknown is he has predestined them. And do you see the context here? He's, he's predestined this group of people to be conformed to the image of his son. And he has called them, he's justified them, and he's glorified them. So clearly he's talking about Christians, those who eventually will be with him forever. And the beginning of this chain, the beginning of this process is that God foreknew them. And so this two-handed view looks at this word for, for new and says that it means that God looks down the portals of time and knows who will have faith in Jesus and predestines, because remember, what's after for new? He predestines those whom he knows, he foreknows, will have faith in Jesus. You see, do you see the logic there? You have, you have two people, just think of a, of a guy named Dave and a guy named Bob, and God looks down the portals of time, and he knows that Dave will have faith in Jesus. He foreknows that, and so based on his foreknowledge of what Dave will do, he predestines Dave, but God foreknows that Bob will not choose Jesus, and so he does not predestine Bob because Bob does not choose Jesus. And this, this seems kind of, kind of satisfying, doesn't it? We all sort of think, okay, well, I, I understand. Yeah, that sort of makes sense. Of course, we all know that God knows the future, and, and, and I would agree that God knows exactly what Dave and Bob are going to do. In fact, he knows what you and I are going to do. Just think about that. God knows everything. He knows everything. But if we think a little bit more deeply about that particular view, it has some problems biblically. If we, if we just think, okay, God foreknew that Dave was going to trust in Jesus and he foreknew that Bob was not, it doesn't really answer the question, why does Dave trust in Jesus and Bob doesn't? 
And you may say, oh, well, God gave each, Dave and Bob, a measure of faith, and Dave exercised it, and Bob did not. And sort of that sort of feels satisfying, like, okay, this seems kind of fair, right? Seems sort of fair, and Dave, they both, Dave, Dave did something that Bob didn't. But why did Dave exercise, why was he strong enough and Bob wasn't? If that's the case, friends, we are forced to admit that the final act of salvation is not completed by God, but something in the creature. Do you see that? There's something in Dave that's not in Bob. So Dave could take a little bit of credit for his salvation because he did something that Dave did not. And by the way, friends, that particular view misunderstands, I think, human nature in its natural state. Dave and Bob are not neutral free agents that have any ability to do anything anyway. We have been saying throughout Romans that the problem with humanity is not merely that we are incapacitated, but that we are dead in our sins. We are completely unable to do anything in and of ourselves to willingly respond to God. And so Dave and Bob are not Two guys walking around, neutral moral characters that are given an opportunity. Dave and Bob and every other person that has ever lived are dead in their sins, completely unable to choose God. And so I think a, a better understanding of this word for new is not that God knew facts about Dave and Bob, or you and me, but that God foreloved Dave. We all understand this word know, at times carrying a connotation of knowing more than just facts about a person, right? Like, for example, and uh, parents, you may want to go earmuffs here for a second on your young children, but when we say, when the Bible says that Adam knew his wife Eve, Y'all know what that's talking about, right? Okay. It doesn't mean that Adam knew that Eve was 5'6", had brown eyes and brown hair, and liked to take piano lessons. It, it implies an intimacy there. It implies... I see a bunch of smiles. I ruined the... That's a, but you understand... It's a covenantal love. We see this in the Old Testament. Listen to Amos chapter 3, verse 2, where God is speaking to Israel, who he has known. He says, You only have I known of all the families on the earth. You only have I known. And he's in this instance, he's punishing them for their rebellion, and he says, Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. 
Now, God is not saying in Amos chapter 3 when he says, I know you, Israel, above all the families and you only. He's not saying, I don't know everybody else, right? You, you understand that. He's not saying, I have no cognitive realization of all the other races, of all the other uh, groups of people in the world. Of course he knows that. Of course God has foreknowledge. But this word know means something much deeper in God's redemptive covenantal purposes with his people. It means that he has foreloved. He has foreloved Israel. And that's the context of what is going on here in Paul's logic in verse 29. For those, a group of people, whom he has set his affection on. Not because of anything good in them. And if you look at Israel's election or choosing in the Old Testament, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. I'll summarize it here. I won't take the time to read it. But, but Moses is saying to, God is saying through Moses to Israel, he's saying that I love you not because you had any prior conditions in you that merited anything, but I love you because I love you. In other words, there was nothing in you that made or provoked a response from me. There were no conditions in you, Israel, that said, ah, you guys would be a great group of people to start my redemptive work through and eventually bring the Messiah from. That's not what God meant when he said he chose Israel and he knew Israel. He says, I chose you because I chose you. I love you because I love you. And the context here is the same that Paul is saying for those whom he foreknew, meaning that those whom God foreknew, he foreloves and he loves them not because there's anything in them that he is responding to because how can God respond to anything good in dead people? Do you see that? To understand this, friends, you have to have a good understanding of a doctrine of sin and what it's done to all humanity. We don't have a hand by which we can reach back and respond to God in cooperation because we're dead in our sins. And so the foreknowing for love here is a love that is without conditions. It is unconditional. So for those, a particular group of people whom he foreloved, not because of anything good in them, but solely because or simply because God was free to love them and not others. God has foreloved them. And what has he done as a consequence of his forelove? That takes us to the next word. He has predestined them. He has, and this word means exactly what it, what it means. He has determined their destination ahead of time. So he has said to his people, to those, a particular group of people, you are part of those because I have foreloved you. And because I foreloved you, I am guaranteeing that your eventual outcome will be with me. That's what, that's what this text means so far. But he doesn't just fast forward us to that point. It says that those whom he has predestined, he has also called. 
So what does that word called mean? Well, there are are two kinds of calling that we see in in the scriptures. There's certainly a general call where God will call everybody to repent and believe. But but there is another kind of calling that is clearly implied in this text. It's it's what what we would call an an effectual call. It's a call that is always effective. It is a summons of the king that cannot be resisted. Notice the definitiveness of what Paul is saying about those who are foreknown and foreloved and are called. It's not a kind of open-ended call that applies to everybody and some will reject and some will respond to. No, read it carefully. He says, for those whom he foreknew, particular group of people, not one more, not one less. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And then in verse 30, for those, not one more, not one less, whom he predestined, he also called. So all of the predestined get called. And all of the called get justified. So you see, that's the important thing for you to see. Those whom he called, he guarantees that they will be justified. So that calling is not general, it's particular, it's effective. Those, every one of them that he calls, he justifies. And those whom he justifies, every one of them, not one more, not one less, he also glorifies. And he says it in the past tense, even though it's in the future, because he can speak of it, because it's so sure that it's going to happen, guaranteed. This, this is, friends, this is exactly what, what Tyler read to us this morning out of John 6. Let's, let's read John 6 again slowly and, and think about what Jesus is saying here. John 6. Jesus is speaking about this call and this mission that God has given him. This calling that will take effect for those whom he's foreknown and predestined and called and justified and glorified. Jesus says in verse Verse 37, let's look at that. It says, all, not one more and not one less, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Do you see the definitiveness there that Jesus is speaking with? He's saying that every single person that he has given me, and I think we can piece this together with our text in Romans, Jesus is speaking about the those. He's saying all of those that the Father has given to me will come to me. It's guaranteed. And I'm not going to lose one of them. So this calling here is clearly not speaking of a kind of general call. 
It's an effective call. It's a particular call. It's a call that always succeeds. And so how does God bring those whom he's foreloved and predetermined their eventual outcome, how does he bring them into that? Not by conking them over the head and dragging them off, but by calling them through the preaching of the gospel. So we see that God has an end, the predestination of those whom he's foreloved for his glory, but he doesn't, this is so important, see this, he doesn't accomplish the end apart from the means. So nobody is saved apart from the calling and the preaching and the sharing of the gospel. Some of us read this word predestined and we think that God's up there in heaven in a capricious sort of way, just knocking people over the head, duck, duck, damned. And there's some that make it and some that don't. And so here we are, what are we doing anyway? I mean, if the future's kind of set, what are we doing? No, God has attached himself He has fastened his guaranteed end to the means of our life and ministry, preaching of the gospel, sharing prayers. God accomplishes accomplishes nothing apart from the means of what he set out in his scripture. And so he calls people. And that call itself actually produces, it actually creates what it commands. I think we see this in in John chapter 11 where Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus. And I know I use this illustration a lot and I, I, I do because I think it's very powerful and it's very clear. Is that Lazarus is dead. He is Jesus' friend and he's been dead for several days now. And he's so dead that the Bible wants to emphasize that he's dead and not just sort of sick by saying that he, he stinks. It's in the Bible. He stinketh. And it's wanted to emphasize that his flesh is decomposing lest anybody thinks that he's in sort of a coma. And Jesus comes to the grave of Lazarus and he tells Lazarus to get up. Now there's nothing in Lazarus that is agreeing with Jesus and cooperating with Jesus and reaching back to Jesus in a synergistic two-handed sort of way. Because dead people can't reach. But notice that when Jesus tells Lazarus to get up, his call creates what it commands. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. He doesn't say it will give you the power of salvation if you agree with it. No, the gospel creates what it commands. And Jesus, in that moment of his call of Lazarus, makes Lazarus alive. He makes his dead heart live. And now as the first breath of his new life, he is able to respond to Jesus and have faith in what Jesus says, and he gets up. He responds to the call that has created in him the very thing that Jesus has commanded of him. 
But he was able to do that because Jesus gave it to him, not because it was innately resting in him and Jesus fanned into flame, stoked the little ember of dying faith in Lazarus. No, Jesus created what he commanded, which was new life, and the first fruit of new life was the faith that it took to get up from that tomb. Do you see the definitiveness here? Augustine said this, the great early church father in the early 400s, he said about this truth, Lord, think about this phrase. He says, command what you will and grant what you command. That's the way grace works. Grace doesn't agree with anything already residing in us. Grace creates what it commands. This means that the preaching and the teaching and the sharing of the gospel is absolutely necessary. No one is saved apart from it. Sometime, eventually here, we're going to get to Romans chapter 10, and we're going to read. And by the way, Romans chapter 9 is full of more of this God-glorifying truth, God-centeredness of salvation. But then we get to Romans chapter 10. And we read in verse 13 where it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So God calls and he creates the ability to call back to him. But in verse 14, God binds himself, he fastens himself to the means of the sharing of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, the praying for people. He says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? In other words, God does not accomplish, does not bring about his foreknowing, predestining, calling, justifying, glorifying in a person's life apart from the end time reality of their life and our ministry as a church and as individuals. And then he says, after they are called, that they are justified. And we are justified. We've been dwelling on this in Romans chapter 4. We are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Right? So nobody is saved apart from faith. You must have faith to be saved. I can't say that loudly enough. But... The faith that saves you is not something that you bring to the table that God sees in you prior and responds to. The faith that you have that saves you is something that God gave you when he made you alive. And seeing that, friends, you may think, oh, well, that's nitpicky theological. This guy's boring me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Friends, seeing that is the difference between God getting all the glory in your redemption or him not. And I think that's kind of important. I'm, gonna, I'm not just going to say that because Augustine said it or because I'm saying it. I'm going to say it because the Apostle Paul says it in his letter to the Ephesians. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses one through eight or nine or so. Let me, let me read this. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is an indictment. 
And that is all of us. He says, all mankind, good moral Americans, upper class white folks in Baptist churches who grew up on Awana and VBS and whose daddy was a deacon and whose mama played the piano, you, (laughs) there's good news for you on a beautiful spring morning, you are by nature objects of God's wrath. And you, (laughs) there's a church growth strategy for you there, huh? And you were dead in your sins. Which means that you are completely unable to do anything. Dead people don't have faith. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So it doesn't say that he looked at those who, who had faith. He regenerated you. He said, get up. And he brought a new heart where there was a dead heart and he made you alive. And by grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So God uses the instrumentality of faith to be the means by which we respond to the life-creating command. And you may think, well, okay, Brad, that just proves it. I, I had faith, and so that's what... By, no, no, no. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. So you are justified by faith. And it's certain. All of your guilt has been acquitted, and Jesus' righteousness has been given to you. And all of that is a consequence of the fact that God has foreloved you, he's predetermined where you will end up, and he has called you by his gospel, and he has justified you, and he has, passed. this is just stunning to me, he has glorified those, that particular group of people. He's glorified them. Now, we just read in verses 18 through 25 that we await a future glorification. So I don't think that Paul has forgotten what he just wrote, and I don't think Paul is mixing up his tenses. But when you're writing a letter that is inspired by the triune God who is not bound by time or tenses, you can go a little bit on either side of the timeline. And so, in verses 18 through 25, as we suffer and we await a future glorification that we know is future and will be fully consummated, The logic that Paul grounds all of this on is the for-loving, sovereign grace of God, which means that he can speak about our future glorification as if it's already happened because it's not in doubt. It is so certain that Paul speaks of it in the past tense. And friends, it's important for us to realize before we land this plane That God has done all of this in love. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. This is not just some clinical execution of salvation amongst those whom 
God has determined will be with him forever. It is in a familial, adoptive love. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Because he loved you, Christian. He predestined you for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So all of this God has done not as a capricious, sovereign, distant God, but as a loving, gracious Father. Well, a few objections that you may have. You may think, Brad, I'm I'm tracking with you. I see the logic here. At least hopefully you do. But you may be thinking, well, what what about free will? I mean, isn't our will free? Friends, the Bible does not speak of our will as being free in an autonomous sort of way. Our will before we are rescued and redeemed and saved and made alive by God, is enslaved. That's the natural state. Did did it sound like the people that Paul was speaking to in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, were free? No, they were objects of God's wrath following the course of this world. So I, I grant you're free. You're free in a sense. But you're free like a prisoner is free and he's in the prison yard and he's free to shoot hoops lift weights walk from one end of the prison yard to the other he's free to do whatever he wants to do but he's not free to reach through that gate and unlock himself from the inside out and free himself you see our hearts are fallen And we are free to do whatever our hearts desire to do, but the desires, the consequence of our fallenness means that our hearts will never be able to do what will please God in and of themselves. So we are free to do whatever we want to do, but we will never be able to want to please God because we can't because we're enslaved. Some people say, another objection, Brad, this just doesn't seem fair, you know, that, that God would forelove some and not others, not because of anything in them, but simply because of his free choice. And that doesn't seem fair. Let's go back to Dave and Bob. It doesn't seem fair that God would forelove Dave and not forelove Bob. Okay, well, let's look at the, the perspective, the other perspective, kind of the two-handed view that I, that I outlined of that word foreknowing, that God knows that Dave will make a decision for him, and so based on Dave's choice of him, God, God chooses Dave because of Dave's, he knows Dave will choose him, but he doesn't choose Dave because he knows, or, or Dave and Bob, he, he chooses, I'm sorry, <laughs> 
He chooses Dave because he knows Dave will choose him. And he doesn't choose Bob because he knows Bob will not choose him. And that feels fairer, doesn't it, in a sense? Because it's kind of like Dave and Bob had, you know, had sort of their own say in this. But friends, if we look at it more closely, we still have a God who, for whatever reason, has decided not to work in Bob's life in a way that would lead him to choose him. We still have a God who could save Bob, but has decided not to. So our charge of God not being fair in his sovereign freedom isn't really answered by this two-handed view. Do you see that? Friends, our real objection is that God would let anybody perish. That's our real objection. No, friends, we don't want to get into a quibble about fairness with God. If we started to talk to God about fairness, all of us would be on the wrong end of that deal. Praise God that he's not fair. If he were, none of us. Fairness is a meritocracy that is at odds with grace. And by the way, if, if in that fairness objection, I want you to unearth maybe a possible flaw in your view of God and humanity. I think that, and I want to be gentle here, I want to be pastoral if you're struggling with this, because I want to help you, because I, 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 I want to help you with this, and I, and, I, and I just want you to wrestle with this. In that objection that this is not fair, you are assuming the best of humanity and the worst of God. Do you see that? No, friends. God... In that verse in Ephesians, those that are dead in their sins, and it says, but God, who is rich in mercy, and let's personalize it right now. Right now, your objection, and it's emotional, and I know it is, because you're thinking of that person that you love, and you're thinking, what if God has not foreloved that person? What, what if, what if, and what if? But friends, put your hope not in the freeness of a person's will, but in the freeness and the riches of God's grace. Do you see that? Assume better things about the goodness of God. And don't assume such good things about the wickedness of our fallen hearts. Friends, this truth, if you see it this way, that there will be people beating on the doors of heaven on that last day saying, let me in, and God will say, I'm sorry, I didn't foreknow you, I didn't love you. Friends, that is not the picture of this. Friends, the real picture that the Bible paints is that all of us, every single person, whether in our self-righteous morality or obvious sin, is running headlong away from God, and God in his kindness is snatching a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue and nation and redeeming them and for loving them and determining that he will call them and justify them and glorify them all for his glory and that number is more than we can imagine 
Some people may say, well, Brad, this undermines evangelism. Because if God has foreloved of those whom he's guaranteed to call, then, you know, let's just watch football and eat Cheetos. Because the future's set. Imagine a father who is a master carpenter. And he's in his workshop with his son. And the father has determined to build a table. A beautiful dining room table for the family. Of course the father could do it all himself. But he's inviting his son into the process. And he's cutting the wood, he's sanding it. And he needs some nails to fasten two boards together. And he says, son, go grab me. Go grab me that box of nails and that hammer and bring it over here. Imagine the son saying to the master carpenter father, Oh, daddy, you're the master carpenter. You can do it all by yourself. You do it. <laughs> mm. That's what's underneath that objection. Yeah, God, God could do it all himself, but he has determined to make, he's fastened himself to us to be the means by which he calls, justifies, glorifies those whom he has foreloved. Friends, why is this important? And I end with this. Because our rock-solid assurance depends on it. This truth that God has loved us if we are in Christ and has determined that we will be with him and that he has called us and justified us and that he will glorify us is the rock-solid foundation of his sovereign power that rests, that the verse 28 rests upon, upon that rock, he guarantees that no matter what happens to you, he will work it out for your good. Because those whom he has for love, he has predestined, and those whom he has predestined, he has called, and those whom he has called, he has justified, and those whom he has justified, he has past tense glorified. In other words, he will bring all of his children, every one of them, not one more, not one less, safely home. And you can bank on that. You can fight sin with that. You can fight suffering with that. You can fight anything that this world has to throw at you with that. Because if God is for us, this is verse 31. We're getting into it in a couple weeks. This is Paul's conclusion. If God is for us in this way, who can be against us? So bring it, world. I'm standing on the rock of God's unbreakable love. Let's pray. Father, use this to produce boldness, assurance, risk-taking, sin-fighting, mission-sending, boldness in the life of your people. And I pray that you would use this also to soften the heart of any person in this room who came in not knowing you. Let them see that this is 
this God-centered view of all things is actually such good news for them. This means that they can be loved by you not because of anything good in them. There's nothing in them that will commend them to you. It's simply by your free grace. And if they are hearing these words and if their heart is being awoken different, that is, Lord, let them know that that is evidence, I believe, of you calling them to turn from themselves and trust in Christ. Lord, do all these things, I pray, for the glory of your name and for the good of your people, for the salvation of those who are yours. In Jesus' name.